Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk uh, tech, Infowars, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's going to be a fun show tonight. Um, there are a good crew of humans in here. Uh, Lily, you're, you're with us tonight. Um, I am. Have you had a, a good week in tech? Um, how have things been for you? It's been an okay week in tech. Um, as, as a Roomba owner, it's been a little bit of a stressful week in tech. I'm mm. just uh, concerned about what my Roomba is doing now. Mm. <laughs> I did see in the Twitter thread, or we'll talk about this later, that mm. um, someone's Roomba was constantly bumping into one of their chairs um, and we all got around that and thought, oh, it's probably just trying to um, damage it so it can replace it um, and who's going to sell you a chair? You know? yeah. yeah, good old Jeffrey. Uh, Dan, how are you tonight? I'm very well. well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Um, how's, how's your week in technology? My week, going in, on? my week in technology has been remarkably simple. Mm. Um, I, I have. I do, I do not own a Roomba. You don't own a printer either, by the sound of it. No, no, I don't. Um, well, I do, but it's not plugged in. Oh, that, that's why it's simple. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to. We'll have to um, get into fishing tech with you someday because I feel like you might have some things to say. About I, I've, 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 I've got a lot of information about um, depth sounders and fish finders <laughs> that I can impart to people, but. but Maybe it's more a Radio Marinara kind of show. We'll do that. Um, I'm with you also tonight. I'm Warren Davies. Um, we've got some great stuff to have a chat about tonight. Um, the foundering Twitter deal with Elon Musk uh, does launch into another month. It's a bit of a, a, a car crash. Will he buy it? Will he not? What difference will it make? Are we still awake? Um, it is interesting. Um, we do have to, um, uh, I guess, consider uh, what, what's kind of become a public utility or really is a public utility um, what happens when it passes into private hands and uh, especially someone of the, the nature of Musk. So we'll be joined by uh, Dana Bossio of Swinburne University um, to have a poke around in this um, in a few minutes. And if you do play chess, um, you're probably wearing some uh, heavy gauntlets this week, um, <laughs> knowing that your fingers are now at risk. And everybody else, uh, a chess robot did, in fact, break uh, the finger of a child last week during a game uh, in Russia. Um, we'll be joined by uh, Associate Professor Maria O'Sullivan of Monash University um, from the uh, the law uh, faculty to look at the uh, ethical considerations of uh, more capable robots. But um, before those things, um, there is a bit of news to, to get our heads around and um, explosions out at Google. Uh, Lily, what's what's going on there? Yeah, it's a good question. Honestly, we still don't entirely know what's going on there. But this happened uh, late Tuesday Australian time. There was an explosion at a data centre, a Google data centre in Iowa, um, which left three, three electricians with fairly serious burns, which isn't great. Apparently, they're all in a stable condition now, which is, you know, that's good. But it also coincided with a global outage of a couple of different Google services that included Gmail, Maps, Image Search. Um, apparently, those things aren't related but who can really say? Do, do, you, do either of you know what this uh, arc, arc fire is? Is that when just like a current jumps from one point to another? I, Does that make any sense? That sounds about right. It's probably like I'm not an electrical engineer or an electrician, mm. but it seems like perhaps like something that would happen if there were, you know, exposed wires near each other with high voltages. 
don't know. The word plasma is jumping into my head for some reason. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, Watch I'm, out not, for that. I'm not sure about that. That could be completely yeah. wrong. I just got back from the Rotoscope Lightning Film Festival in Brisbane on the weekend, mm. and uh, I have a lot of very strong mental images of just lightning shooting out from things right now. That, that Probably actually sounds kind of cool. It was amazing. <laughs> Interesting. Um, watch out for that one. Um, Dan, you've been uh, keeping an eye on the uh, COVID tracing app. Yeah, uh, I have. been going on there? I see you use it often. <laughs> I'm the, I, I, I am something. the only person in the country who is pay, paying attention to the COVID safe app. <laughs> um, and as a result of that, it's been announced that um, it's, time to, it's time to pour some out for our dear, dearly departed COVID safe app. The government, the federal government is uh, decommissioning it because no one is using it. Um, for those who remember back into the deepest, darkest early days of the pandemic, um, it was touted as a very um, effective way of monitoring uh, contact tracing, you know, where you're going, that kind of thing. And so there was, uh, I think it was a Bluetooth handshake or some kind of thing that utilised to sort of, you know, help you um, monitor where you'd been and who you'd been in contact with. And there were a whole lot of privacy concerns and people were alternatively up in arms because it was a privacy thing, but also they wanted to leave the house and so they were willing to begrudgingly accept it. It was as good as sunscreen. It was as good as sunscreen. <laughs> according to our, our, our former Prime Minister, it was as good as sunscreen. Uh, what I can tell you that in the two and a bit years since it's been launched, um, it has a cost of $21 million Australian dollars and found two positive cases of COVID-19. So that's $10 million per case. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So a great, great return on investment, mm. and um, it still was costing seventy-five grand to run. So uh, with, I guess, well, however you feel about you know the the opening up of society and whether you think we're doing it too fast or too slow, um, it's happened now, and so this COVID safe app has been um, given an unceremonious kick out the door. It will be uh, the next update if you haven't already downloaded it. Uh, removes functionality so that no information is stored or collected. So RIP COVID safe app. So you can't you you literally can't just delete it. There is a kind of a better process here. I'm I'm not sure. Not sure. I guess yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you could. I mean, I'm sure many people have already deleted it. <laughs> <laughs> if for, I've, I've I've still got it, I've got the ghost of it on. I don't know if you guys have this thing, but like if you don't use an app for a while on Apple mm. devices, it just kind of automatically uninstalls itself. It keeps the keeps the little icon on there, but if you don't use it for a while, it just saves to save space. It uninstalls. It, yeah, COVID Safe is definitely one of those apps that is not installed on my computer. There's something though. very symbolic about that ghosted icon. Ghosted icon, a little cloud there. Come back. Yeah. Speaking of tech that we uh, we should be concerned about, um, there's been a, an interesting acquisition uh, by Amazon, um, iRobot, which uh, runs the Roomba devices, those uh, mm. friendly little vacuums <laughs> that that run around uh, your house while you're um, doing other more interesting stuff. Um, yeah. They've bought it. Um, I think it's a $1.6 billion acquisition um, for the, the company. And at first you go, I don't know, uh, not a lot of coin for them. Um, and you go, why would they be interested in that? And then it all starts to make sense um, when you have this kind of, uh, I don't know, Facebook conspiracy theory group kind of glint in your eye and go, <laughs> um, well, actually, they have a lot of data. These things are just uh, riding around our houses, taking photos, uh, mapping where we have things, uh, where we are, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think there's about 40 or 50 million um, Roomba users around the world. Um, and there's a neat little overlap between uh, Amazon's core business of um, you know, what's in your home, uh, where you are, uh, obviously Alexa and, and a host of other desi- uh, devices and and interests um, by the group. So um, 
Yeah, uh, pe people are concerned about this, as they should be. Uh, perhaps um, we do need better safeguards uh, about these kinds of um, acquisitions in the future. I don't know. What, what do you two think about this one? I mean, as a Roomba owner, this is creeping me out a bit. It was, you know, I really enjoy having a Roomba. It's good. It saves me a lot of time. Mm. Um, but also, it has a camera and it has a map of my house. And I was, you know, I, I knew that that was being uploaded somewhere. Knowing it's being aggregated with a bunch of other stuff deliberately by Amazon is kind of creepy. Mm. I'm also, I can't remember whether iRobot, the, the company that makes them, is the one that also makes those robot lawnmowers that essentially do the same thing but for your lawn because that those have a spinning blade attached yeah. to them and i don't know if i want jeff bezos to have internet controlled spinning blades no mm. and uh, as as someone who as a, 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 no we don't talk about what we said on air but i uh, spent the last week watching the terminator films from beginning <laughs> to end i'm not cool with this mm. i'm just not cool with this no, nothing that is automated should have blades attached to it mm. yeah what, what, what's the worst that could happen, though, aside from um, them trying to sell us a bunch more stuff just to play different A whole lot of Roombas. <laughs> uh, like intelligent Roombas? Well, well, well I mean, if you own state. a Roomba, is Amazon going to try and sell you another Roomba? Like, is it going to be Roomba Inception? <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. They have Let's a fleet of them. Yeah. No, yeah. they'll, they'll just... It's like, you're, you're not clean enough. Have another one. Well, do you remember that story from a couple of years ago where the, the Roomba ran over that woman's uh, dog crap? In the middle yes. of the night, yeah, and smeared it all over the house. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, no, you should go and look it up. It's one of those yeah. stories that's kind of faded into internet legend, but it did happen. I think it's happened multiple times. Anyway, that is a fairly unique form of revenge should you leave a negative review. Surely that's an saying. easy engineering solve, like just a little bumper, little detector scooper thing on the front there. Apparently they do have a database of pictures of poop that they've been collecting <laughs> well, they, they, to do more Im image recognition. No, I'm serious, for image recognition purposes so oh that God. they know the varieties that it, it could become. Yeah. Gary, well, we've got another unidentified obstruction in the corridor. <laughs> um, Gary, come in. Can you confirm? I'm, I'm just imagining a whole lot of like, well, now Amazon employees just like scrolling through photos of crap. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Sure. Poor people already have a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> These things will uh, rise to the surface, uh, obviously, in, in, in coming months. But, um, yeah, uh, if, if you do own a Roomba, if you are concerned about this, maybe it's time to um, pull the plug, uh, unfortunately. Get a vacuum. Get a vacuum. Um, <laughs> we do have a, 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 a sleeping kind of Alex Jones watch going on. Um, I didn't know about on the show. He is in the news um, this week. Um, Lily, why is Alex in the news? And, and who is Alex, as I asked? Oh, boy. Um, for those of you who have... Not yet had the misfortune of learning who he is. He is uh, the InfoWars guy, one of the main sort of conspiracy theory peddlers. Um, I think it was oh, was it Wired referred to him as a professional bloviator, which I think is wonderful. Mm. Um, who has been yeah sharing a lot of conspiracy theories related to I mean, there's a lot of QAnon stuff, a lot of hor like right wing misinformation kind of stuff. Um, and one of the things that he has been uh, putting forth is that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting from a few years ago was, you know, was, did not happen, which is not true. Um, but his, 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 you know, his take and platform he has, he's been using that to spread lies about the fact that, well, what he thinks is a fact that, you know, they hired crisis actors to do all of this kind of stuff. It's really horrible. Anyway, so a lot of the parents of the victims of that shooting um, are suing him. And the case itself has become an interesting focal point because in the United States where free speech is a very, you know, it, its own thing there, um, 
that has raised a lot of questions about what it means in that context and online and what platform means and what a public figure means and all of those kinds of things. Um, but what has happened in the course of this is that um, Alex Jones had to provide context, the content of his phone, including his text messages and things like that, to his lawyers. His lawyers, in a baffling turn, provided that entire thing to <laughs> the lawyers of the other party, who who then submitted it to court and shared it. Um, so now all of that information is out there and can be seen, um, which was absolutely not the intended um, outcome of this, and I'm certain that at least one person was probably fired over it, but provided some of the most um, unproblematic schadenfreude I think I've ever experienced. Mm. Do, do either of you ever kind of hover the thumb over the send button on messages? Like, oh, you know, I'm trying to keep my conversations quite separate here and kind of have that anxiety. Imagine imagine this lawyer now. <laughs> kind of like every kind of like pizza order they put in, kind of like... Uh, you never send another text. Yeah. <laughs> undo, undo, undo. <laughs> Apparently it's called um, e-discovery. And uh, I, I was reading a, you know, a white article about it saying that... Um, Lawyers literally have to pour through like thousands and thousands of these documents and kind of figure out: um, do they hold on to it? Can they? Um, should they provide it? Um, and it's a it's a very laborious process. Um, and it was just a simple mistake there. We're literally just like the wrong click of a mouse can mean you know someone gets two years worth of text messages. Absolute um, worst thing that can happen from their point of view, but a real gift for many many other people. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. If you're anything like us, you will have been watching on in horror as Elon Musk treats Twitter and its shareholders as his own personal plaything. Now, I could rant on about this for the next half hour, but it's a much better use of our time to speak to someone who actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, Dr Diana Bossio is Associate Professor of uh, Media and Communications at Swinburne University of Technology's Department of Media and Communications and a friend of the show. Diana, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Diana... Elon's purchase of uh, Twitter has been a car crash that we haven't been able to look away from. <laughs> Maybe we should oh, start. Is that, <laughs> is that the end of the question? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes question. that's correct. So yeah. for the questions. <laughs> well, look, yeah, for, uh, for, for, the, for those of us who aren't um, up to speed, um, maybe we should start with what the latest developments are. Um, well, the latest, I think, is that we're due for um, a court case. So uh, in October, I think actually it was a bit of a, a blow to Musk because he was assuming that he could delay this um, court proceeding, but um, judge ruled against him. So they're going to court, Twitter and Musk, um, in uh, mid-October. And uh, in the meantime, there has been... Uh, quite an entertaining uh, battle of uh, responses to the various claims that um, Musk has been um, putting forward both through his lawyers and on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yes. So I think, yeah, I think the car crash is, is continuing. <laughs> Good. That, that, it'll keep us entertained, I guess. So what, what, kind of, what are the kind of claims that Musk has been doing? Like, obviously, like anyone who watches his Twitter, is, it's, it's, it's as, almost as much of a cesspit as this whole situation. But, like, <laughs> um, what, what, are the, what are the claims that he's making that are kind of, I suppose, um, fueling his desire to not go ahead with the, with the, with the purchase? Mm, well, the, the main claim is that um, he was not 
adequately informed that Twitter was um, full of bots. Um, so he's claiming that, in fact, the majority of um, uh, users on Twitter are, in fact, bots and that um, the value of, of the company diminishes in, in, in that regard. Um it's a big claim to make, given that he had originally said that he was purchasing Twitter because he wanted to um, clean up um, the, the situation with, with bots on, on the platform. Um, he's not quite right um, about bots, but Twitter has been successfully um, sued by shareholders for uh, inflating uh, figures around their, their um, active users. So th there is a, a slight precedent there, but um, Twitter has claimed that um, Musk has gotten his information about <laughs> um, about how many bots are on, uh, are on Twitter through some kind of weird third-party um, website where he's just fed a website some figures and, and managed to... Uh, make his claim. <laughs> um, and is it true, I read something on Twitter, is it true that uh, <laughs> um, that Musk, when he was agreeing to buy Twitter, he actually agreed to, um, oh, what was it, what was it, a specific performance to pay $44 billion, like as in, this is what he has to do, he has to pay $44 billion regardless of what else happens? So that's um, that's uh, basically the um, agreement that you come to when you um, uh, when you basically sign for merger, mergers and acquisitions. So um, what that means is that he <laughs> he's unlikely to get out of the deal um, mm. because he uh, he's already he hasn't done his due diligence, so he, he won't be able to get out of a, a contract that's already been financed by very large banks, um, so it's going to be an interesting... He's going to have to prove um, that he was fundamentally misled in the courts, um, otherwise he's going to have to fulfil that contract, and that's, that's what Twitter is saying as well. And what I'm really understanding from his behaviour, at least, is that because he is richer than God, he can just kind of do whatever he wants, regardless of what the law says, and that's why he's trying to get out of it, is because he can just sort of throw his wealth at it? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the short, the short nice. answer to that. The short answer to that question is yes. Um, uh, look, there's been a lot of um, you know gossip about whether he's wanting to liquidate assets, whether you know this has to do with Tesla and his own declining wealth, and this was just a way to you know manipulate the stock market. There's absolutely no doubt that whatever he is, he is a stellar media performer um, and, a, and an absolute master manipulator, both of the stock market and of Twitter itself. Um, I don't think it's going to be uh, that easy to throw money at this problem. So um, he won't be able, in this particular case, he won't actually be able to just pay damages he will, in fact, have to go through with the deal. Um, so that's what he'll be fighting in the courts um, come October. What's the um, case for uh, shifting these kinds of utilities to, to public ownership or some kind of stronger regulation? So I mean, obviously it's hugely 
commercially valuable to him to, to sort of purchase all the, the data troves uh, of Twitter, um, especially in respect to businesses like Tesla. Like, he can see what people are saying about it. He can read all of our direct messages. He, he knows, like, who's thinking about it, who's searching, etc. Um, should these kinds of um, digital platforms remain in public, in private hands? Like, is there a case for, for doing it differently, do you think? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, this is a, it's a really good example of, or at least a reminder that, you know, these platforms are private organisations and they, they are acting as de facto public squares. But in fact, all of the decisions that are being made about what you see and how you see it and whether you see it at all, um, is being made by executives um, and uh, designers and uh, web developers. And that's not to say that it's necessarily a bad thing. I think probably what the answer is diversification of, of people's media diets, but, you know, the reminder that, you know, you, you are, as a user, valuable to Twitter because of your data, which is in private hands, um, and whether or not, you know, you want to do that or whether you want to uh, find alternate ways to get your information and be part of the public square um, is definitely, um, it's definitely a, a good question, um, you know, for, for everyone, really. I think um, there has been an increasing push towards regulation. Um, so, for example, in Australia, we've seen um, the Media Bargain Code, um, which has allowed um, uh, news organisations to um, reach agreements with Facebook and Google um, around paying for public interest journalism. Um, Twitter is actually comparatively small, <laughs> um, although it does, you know, uh, it does still have an important place in in the public sphere. So it's important to think about, you know, how how regulation um, works with private ownership of. Um, something that is essentially public discussion. I think that they have been a little bit better recently with um, uh, features and kind of moderating how you interact with the content and so forth. I think um, just like really gentle nudges to like, hey, you can respond to this, anyone can respond to this. Um, I think you can remove yourself from mentions of your own tweets and stuff uh, as a yeah. recent thing. Um, they're getting better at that, so it's it's getting easier to use and, and to, to sort of navigate. But, yeah, I guess that's a, a pretty thin veneer. Um, in terms of usability over what, what goes on behind the scenes. But, Dan, what were you going to say? Um, I was, I was going to ask, Dana, going back to sort of the <clears throat> the motivations that Elon Musk was kind of talking about behind wanting to do this in the first place, mm. there's this discussion around bots and the number of bots, like there's been a whole lot of contention about the number of bots on the scene, as, you, as you've mentioned already. What, mm. was, what was the kind of driving force behind that? I'm thinking, because as you were saying it, because initially I thought it was just because, you know, the bots make Twitter a, an unpleasant place to be, but is it, is it more about Twitter not representing the number of unique users that it's got and that's what his motivation was to get all these eyeballs or is it, is, is it more Correct. complicated than that? Yes, so he's suggesting that the value is in unique users. So um, bots just kind of muddy the, the value of Twitter because you're not actually getting the engagement and, more importantly, the data um, that that provides um, the value um, that he's looking for. I mean, really, his initial his initial um, 
kind of grand statement was that he wanted to, you know, improve free speech um, by basically taking away all of the content moderation rules that Twitter had just recently put into place. And Twitter had put those moderation rules into place because they'd come under huge criticism, um, you know, when when the COVID-19 pandemic just happened because of all the misinformation that was and disinformation that was being kind of peddled on the on the platform. And he, I don't know, I guess he was saying middle-aged white men just don't get a Guernsey these days and, um, <laughs> <laughs> damn it, we need to hear more from them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, but the, um, I guess the, the thing about bots for him is it's really a, a way for him to say that actually Twitter had overvalued itself um, and that that was a misrepresentation um, and it wasn't worth his um, money. It feels like over the last couple of years, we've had a, a several kinds of waves of people leaving the platform or saying, I'm going to leave it or I'm abandoning it. I don't know if they come back after a couple of months or not, but leaving for other platforms like uh, various Mastodon instances and things like that, where communities are able to have smaller relationships with each other and control the space in a way that fits what their community wants in terms of their guidelines. Do you think that that is actually going to be the future? Do you think that Twitter's value proposition is going downhill steadily or do you think that people kind of do that for a little while and come back to something like Twitter? It's a really good question. Um, so what I think we're seeing is the kind of downturn away from the kind of original idealistic um, view that we had of social media and we're increasingly turning to uh, regulation of uh, both from governments but but also of ourselves on those platforms. So in, in some ways, um, disconnection practices, or at least what I call disconnection practices, are, are ways to mediate, you know, the 24-7 connectedness that we have um, to different platforms and, and different digital media. Um, but it feels like it's kind of always, disconnection is always connected <laughs> to being online. So it's ways to mediate being online rather than um, going away altogether. So people, you know, like you said, they might go to um, smaller, more intimate spaces. They might use WhatsApp or they might use private groups on Facebook. Um, they don't switch off altogether, but they disconnect from that kind of 24-7 online ephemeral um, content type relationship that we've had for so long on a lot of social media. Um, so, yeah, disconnecting is, is kind of, <laughs> it's always connected to being online, um, but it's just a way to make that a more livable way of using those tools, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I, I guess uh, in, in terms of the, the next immediate step, Diana, what, what should we keep our eye out for in, the, in this long Long saga. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would definitely keep my eyes open around mid-October because they'll start to go to court and you'll see him, um, well, as much as he can, tweeting furiously. Um, but uh, I think the, the court case is uh, going to be a pretty epic battle and um, I, I must say if you haven't seen Twitter's response al already, you, you should definitely read it. They leaked it before Musk had a chance to... Um, uh, say anything publicly through his lawyers and and parts of it are actually quite hilarious. 
I do recommend. That's required reading before before the court case. Absolutely. So set your homework. Fantastic. <laughs> thank, thank you. We will definitely get on that and grab the popcorn. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Diana Bossio from Swinburne University of Technology, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on the Elon Musk uh, issue, and I'm sure we'll uh, be chatting again very soon. Thank you so much. If you uh, do um, keep an eye on chess news or robot news, you would have seen uh, last week in Russia uh, a small boy's finger was broken by a chess robot, uh, which is alarming. Um, Apparently, uh, in America alone, uh, one person dies a year uh, from robots uh, related to manufacturing. Um, Of course, we have had uh, autonomous Teslas running over people. Uh, Robots are more in our lives than they ever have been before. So whether it's chess, whether it's manufacturing, uh, whether it's just walking down the street, we do need to have a better idea of of how we live and work with them. So we're now joined on the phone by uh, Associate Professor Maria O'Sullivan, who's Deputy Director of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law uh, and Faculty of Law at uh, Monash University and uh, Maria thanks for dodging the robots and, and making time to come and hang out with us tonight Good evening good evening So uh, what actually happened last week for people who didn't see it what, what went down at the chess game um, well, a, a seven-year-old boy was playing with a chess robot. It was an industrial robot, so I don't think it was actually manufactured to play chess. They were just using it as that. And the, according to the rules, the um, child was supposed to stop and wait, but didn't, and probably because he didn't understand the safety protocols, and he moved too quickly um, to put his finger on or hand on the chess piece, and the robot then put his pincer on the child's finger, and then it, the, the child finger broke and and was this a kind of response to the kind of i guess the the robot not anticipating what's going on and freaking out or was it just that the kid's finger was in the wrong place at the wrong time i think with sensors and so forth the the robot's operating on very rudimentary um criteria like he just sees a chess piece and didn't recognize that the child's finger was on that chess piece so i think it's partly perception it's partly the hardware that the robot was built on it's that it wasn't soft it wasn't a, a human-like hand it was a pincer so there's um some problems i think in the design and manufacturer and then in the actual hardware used in the response to the incident that occurred um the president of the moscow chess federation had some really interesting things to say i mean uh one of them one of the first statements he said was the robot broke the child's finger this is of course bad which I love. We have a stance on this. This is great. Um, and then also um, he said there are certain safety rules and the child apparently violated them. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on here which seems to be a lot more about the way that the child interacted with the robot than the way the robot interacted with the child. And I wondered if that is telling about the way that we are expected to interact with robots or whether this is kind of victim-blaming. Yeah, it's a great point because a lot of the time the onus is on us. And if I could take a non-robot example, with privacy in Facebook, Facebook say, well, the onus is on you. If you want to limit your privacy, the onus is on you. And that creates a lot of problems because a lot of people don't know their privacy rights. They don't go to the trouble, quite frankly, of configuring it to protect their privacy. So if we use that problem... It's been around for many years to apply to robots. It seems that the onus is on the user, whereas I would say the onus is on the manufacturer and the designer to make sure it's safe. Yeah. No, that um, 
that's something that I think brings a lot of different things to mind in terms of the way that these things are integrating more more uh, tightly into our lives. We spoke earlier about on the show tonight about the way that Amazon has just acquired Roomba and the iRobot company as well, and the way that you know those ethics are then transposed onto devices that are inside of our homes. And I'm wondering whether there is any kind of you know link here in terms of how robots could be turn to these unfriendly or hostile purposes um, and and whether this is something we need to have a, a fuller public conversation about before we integrate them more heavily, heavily than we already have. Oh, absolutely. And those in-home devices, whether you're on the phone at Siri or those other sort of, I guess you would call them home maintenance or home operational things. And actually, even the vacuum can... Um, collect data, like, you know, that you're at home on a certain day, a day and you're not at home on a certain day. What if your employer knows that you're u- utilising the, the vacuum? You've programmed it at, you know, 10 o'clock, you should have been at work. So there is data that these sort of devices are collecting, and one big issue at the moment is the privacy of children. So if you had these automated systems in the home, the parents might buy those and consent to the use of those in the home, but the children have not. I feel like this is a conversation we've been having for the last couple of years too around the way that we've been monitoring both students and employees when we've been working from home during the pandemic too. And Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, um, I, the other element to me that really sticks out here is the way that um, – it feels to me the more that we integrate labor-saving devices such as vacuum cleaners and so on into our lives, um, particularly when it comes to robots, it's never really, I think, been a great thing. It's always packaged to us as something that that can really help people to get more leisure time. But it feels like every single time that that's ever happened, and there was a book, uh, it's a classic, in 1985 this book came out. Um, it's called More Work for Mother, which was about when things like washing machines and dishwashers get invented, all it really does is put more pressure on um, homemakers to then clean in more intensive ways than they were able to before. Um, So it's really interesting to me to think more about the ways that we are bringing these things into our lives and whether they're actually of any benefit. And I'm kind of wondering too what the focus is on (laughs) bringing it back to the robots in the chest, whether there is any particular... um, reason why we keep wanting to automate chess playing as well <laughs> like what what does that yeah. mean yeah maybe it's because it's seen as a more logical sort of game and then a, a robot could play it i guess but and and that goes back that you know they've been doing that for a number of years but if i could bring up i guess the social impact and unintended consequences robots for example in intimate sexual relationships are now a thing they're quite human like what does that mean for and it's predominantly males buying it's uh, buying female robots what does that mean to be a human woman if your partner has a sex robot and you have to have a tr- well not have to but you're being put under pressure to have a threesome with that robot or um, just more generally uh, the, 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 you know, robots are being used do you make them human like and program them with consent. I'm looking forward to when the robots just started da- start dating the other robots and just kind of cut us out of the equation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how we know we're obsolete. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Uh, ma- yeah. Ma- Maria, one thing you um, you touched on before was the uh, the fact that the and I, I suppose it's more about the software in this instance, but that the machine itself wasn't actually built to play chess. Now, 
a lot of the robots and kind of automation that we're seeing, it's it's very much for single purpose and built for purpose. And I'm wondering whether when we're talking about, you know, our interactions with these machines, if there is a, I suppose, a loophole that we need to be wary of that if if the machine is being made to do something that it's not built to do, then is it going to be more likely that, you know, the people responsible for the machine or the machines themselves, once they reach sentience, have this argument that's like, well, you weren't using me the way that I was meant to, so it's your fault? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something under product liability law. And I've written about this in the conversation about um, whether our laws really fit for purpose here. So one way that manufacturers can exclude themselves from liability is say, firstly, we didn't know this would happen. This was not within our um, realm of understanding. And that sometimes happens with the so-called black box where we sometimes we don't exactly know what's happening. And then secondly, well, look, you use that, sh- that industrial robot that should have been in the Amazon warehouse you used it for a chess game, and so we're going to evade liability. Interesting. I, I think um, I'm curious to know, uh, in terms of the, um, the the ethics here of uh, of kind of how we overlap with with robots. Um, how how do we kind of mitigate responsibility um, uh, where? Some intelligence is is either assumed or, or actually there. Um, do we do we hold the robots accountable? The manufacturers? Is it kind of like what went down in the chess game, where it was kind of our fault that you know we shouldn't be mucking around in that way and, and doing that? Are there are there any kind of predominant views at the moment about where responsibility lies for for safe interactions? Yeah, it's all contested. I have a PhD student doing this at the moment about liability. So, yeah, it's all very up in the air and unsettled. The normal rules would be that the manufacturer would be responsible under sort of Australian consumer laws. But it does get a bit confusing if the manufacturer says, well, actually, it was the the microchip, not really the the hardware as such, but the way the thing was programmed. And this comes out, obviously, in driverless cars where you've got debates about whether it's the driver is it the manufacturer of Tesla or is it the Silicon Valley um, programmer in California who set up the parameters um, for the operation of the car? We talk a lot about the way that um, you know, the way that things are going in the United States and Silicon Valley in particular, and that makes sense. There's a lot of innovation that's coming out of there that spills over into Australia. Um, but what laws do we have on the books about this stuff in Australia? Is there much at the moment or is it uh, sort of lagging behind? Are we waiting for the case to make the precedent that sets all of the things for the future? Yeah, I think it is lagging behind. Look, we have these AI ethics principles, but they are just principles and they're voluntary in nature. So they would say, for example, that, you know, robots wouldn't, shouldn't harm people. So the problem is that they're voluntary, they're not legislative. Um, The European Union is a little bit more progressed on this. They have a sort of AI regulation, um, and that's really important because obviously with importation of certain things um, or the fact that, um, you know, we've got sort of cross-country exchange of services and so forth, um, it is important to look at those other jurisdictions. So Australian um, uh, sort of legislative makers, they, they are are looking at Europe, but it is unsettled at the moment. You mentioned AI in there. Do you put AI in the same category as physical robots, hardware, for these purposes? Yeah. 
Yeah, AI is a difficult one. Artificial intelligence, yeah, it's it's often used shorthand for all manner of things, you know, for theory, for um, driverless cars. It's, I guess artificial intelligence to me is the um, concept that you're using another, uh, like a non-human entity, whether that's your phone or Siri or some other program, um, even RoboDebt in a very, um, which is the social security, controversial social security mm. thing, um, that was very simplistic, but yeah, it's it's to my mind, describing um, the use of non-human to do um, what would otherwise be human human's work. So, AI, so robots are a particular version of AI. Yeah, no, that's a that's a distinction that I hadn't really dug into before. But thank you for elaborating. That's really, really fascinating. I think we've had a, a lot of really um, meaty topics that we could have dug into here tonight. Unfortunately, we don't have all of the time in the world that I wish we did. But um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've been speaking with Associate Professor Maria O'Sullivan, um, who's Deputy Director of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at the Faculty of Law at Monash University. Thanks for being with us on the show tonight. Thank you so much. Good night. Triple R. Just to wrap up the show, we have a couple of uh, interesting events and things to talk to you about. Um the one that's topmost, uh, foremost, topmost, I don't know, one of those things on my mind is Besides Melbourne, which is back for 2022. Uh, and that will be happening on the 9th, 10th and 11th of September of this year. Um, so if you're interested in information security, cybersecurity, whatever you like to call it, Besides Melbourne has got you. Um, you can get tickets now. Um those went on sale on Monday of this week. And also, if you bought a ticket in 2020, uh, it is still still valid for the 2022 event. Um, if you're interested in knowing more about what's going on, they have training on one of the days and they also have speaking talk things, talks. That's what they do at conferences. Wow, I really am winding down for the evening, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> they have talks uh, on, on the other two days. Anyhow, uh, you can head to besidesmelbourne.com to get your ticket and attend. If you want to do something else uh, with those three days, um, you could get some slime into you. Um, robotic slime um, for, for your stomach. Oh, uh, the master of the out, segue. Out there now. Um, scientists have developed uh, a material um, uh, at a Chinese university in Hong Kong. Um, it's, not, it's not really a robot. Um, it's an amalgam of a variety of matters. But basically it slimes its way along your guts. And the aim eventually is for it to clear obstructions and um, I guess do analysis of of your digestive tract as well. It kind of looks like a, a, a slimy brown bone uh, at the moment, which is not great. I don't know. What what would it take for either of you to, to get on board with this slime in terms of <sighs> cosmetics? No, I've got enough problems with my digestive tract without having to put some <laughs> kind of foreign object in there to clean it up. Uh, really a pinky purple kind of slime? What do you think? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I feel like you're being generous calling it, saying it looks like a bone. Right now the picture I'm looking at definitely looks more like somebody has... Uh, had an accident on the table there, yeah. which is a little oh. awkward. So definitely if they could make it look less like that, mm. might be more willing to to swallow it to get it into the gut. I yeah, think. for sure. It looks like – remember Gak? Yes. Yeah, it looks like someone has dropped some Gak on some dirt and it's rolled around a little bit. That's kind of the, the, the vibe I'm getting from. It is w the worst brown colour that I've ever seen. Yeah. Aside from this particular thing, we are very happy with the show this evening. It was a great uh, chat with both uh, Diana and uh, Maria. And, um, yeah, we got into some good topics. Um, thank you very much, uh, my fellow presenters, Dan and Lily. Um, I hope you had fun. Absolutely. Um, oh, yeah. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 